Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see you all here this afternoon. And today we're going to continue our series. <clears throat> and we're going to talk about the parable of the unjust servant. And before I read the parable of the unjust servant to you, I want to tell you all a story about, <clears throat> about a man that went to a theater to see a play. And as the usher was taking him into the theater to take a seat, he notices he was taking him to the back of the theater. The man wasn't happy about that, so he grabbed the usher and he whispered to him and says, Hey, this is a mystery play. It's my favorite, but I can't understand the dialogue very well in the back. And if you can find me a seat up in the front, I'll give you a real handsome tip. So the usher looks around for a minute and gestures to him to follow him. And he takes him to the front row, or actually the second row, and finds him a real nice seat up there. And the man reaches into his pocket, pulls out a quarter and hands it to the usher. The usher's standing there for a moment. He's looking at this generous tip. And he leans into the man and whispers to him, the wife did it. See, there's something to be said about that story that might make you say, all right. Well, the usher might have been ripped off, but he got his revenge in a clever, cunning, and some might say shrewd way. And in this world, we often appreciate and understand cunningness and shrewdness in others. And in fact, a lot of the movies we might go see or a lot of the plays that we might watch have clever plot twists in which the heroes do a shrewd act to thwart evil and you'll notice that the audience always applauds. But in the parable of the unjust servant, Jesus shows us one key component as to where shrewdness is not always done out of a good act. And if you want, you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, verse 1, and we're going to go ahead and read that now. It says, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account for your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master has taken the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out on my stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down and quickly write fifty. Then he said to another, how, how, how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the son of, sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fell, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You know, this parable, when I read it for the first time, reminded me of a story about a man that was interviewing a few candidates for an accounting job. And the first candidate came in and sat down, and the man asked him a simple question. He said, what's two plus two? And the candidate quickly replied, four. 
and the interview was abruptly over. And the second candidate comes in next, and he sits down, and the same exact thing happened. Well, then the third candidate comes in and sits down, and the man asks him the same question. He gets up, and he closes the blinds and locks the door, and comes over and puts his hands on his desk and leans in and says, how much do you want it to be? And you see, one of the most surprising things about this parable is that the hero seems to be a crook. And that's because he is a crook. Jesus did call him a dishonest manager. And when this dishonest manager or steward was confronted by the rich man about wasting his goods, he panicked. He was scared out of his mind. See, there was no place for him to go if he was put out on the streets. There was no unemployment line or welfare. If he was kicked out, he was done. So he started to create and make a plan for himself. And he calls up a few people that owe the rich man, and he reduces their debt. And he reduces their debt to make friends along the way because surely if when he's kicked out on the streets, they're going to take him in. See, he reduces the debt to make friends, but then the rich man commends him on acting shrewdly. And we see this many times in the Bible where Jesus takes a bad act or a bad person and uses it to teach a great lesson. But I believe that there was another motive here. I believe that when Jesus told this parable, he had someone else in mind. And when we get to the end of the story, we see that is where Jesus hits his mark. Because in verse 14, it says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all of these things, and they derided him. And the word derided means ridiculed or sneered him. But why were, why were, they, why were the Pharisees sneering Jesus? Because Jesus said it was because of their love of money. You see, initially, the Pharisees would have loved this story about the unjust servant. That was their kind of man. This was a guy that would do anything and everything to get ahead. He was a survivor. And you all might recall, a while back, there was a popular TV show called The Survivor. I personally didn't watch it, but I would often hear people talk about the manipulation that the winner would use to get the other players kicked off the island. And there were a lot of people that were just flat out appalled by the deviousness that was used, but other people were impressed. And you see, likewise, the Pharisees were impressed. They were truly impressed. But Jesus tells this parable to set up the Pharisees so that he can reel them in. And knowing that the Pharisees were secretly commending the unjust steward on his sound business practices... I'm being sarcastic. Jesus twists him on the line a little. And again, in verse 10 and 11 says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? So in other words, if you have not been faithful or trustworthy in the riches, how is God going to trust you with godly riches? You see, God doesn't like dishonest people. And this hit, the, this hit the Pharisees hard. See, they never thought about this. I mean, this hit home to them. But then Jesus delivers a final blow. And in verse 13, once again, he says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. See, that was the remark that made the Pharisees sneer. See, for that, 
was the issue that lay at the heart of the Pharisees' callousness. See, the Pharisees had successfully compartmentalized their lives. See, God was over here, and their love of money and pursuit of wealth was over here, but their paths never crossed. Does that sound familiar? And you have to realize that the Pharisees didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to view or value all of these things and all of this money as more valuable than God. See, this was a mindset that snuck up on them over time because of their weak faith and worldly influence. And it is important to note that money is important. We have to pay for our bills. We have to take care of our family and our kids. We have to sock a little bit away to go on vacations and have spending money. And in fact, there's not much you can do in this world without it. Money is a necessity. You see, but for the Pharisees, they got, in, they got into some spiritual bad habits. And it was because of those bad habits that they were not going to receive the true riches that only God can provide. But then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, if that's the case, what could the Pharisees have done to put themselves in a position to inherit those true riches? But I want to take the direction of, more importantly, what, can, what principles can you learn from this story to assure that you will inherit the true riches of God? And I believe that the first principle of inheriting the true riches of God is understanding that what you have and what you own and what you possess is not your own. And Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18 says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. And in other words, all your money and things, they're not yours, they're God's. God gave you the power to get them. God gave them to you. See, the unjust steward had the mindset and took on the mindset that his master or his boss's money was his own and he was spending it and using it and managing it that way. He got into this warped attitude that it was all his. See, and this is where you and I can get in trouble because when we start to view all of our money and all of our possessions as our own, we tend to lose sight of this principle. We tend to be out of grasp. And when you do that, you can fall into two very bad habits. And the first bad habit that you can fall into is that you start to view all those money and possessions as your own, and you start to spend more time acquiring them and appreciating them and less time using them for God's glory. No servant can serve two masters. How often have you looked at your bank account or savings account and just stared at it? How often have you told yourself, maybe to yourself, that I would donate more to the good works of the church if it was ran better or if I had more control? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for what some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see, the acquisition and possession of all of that wealth and all of those things will never bring you happiness. And in fact, that day you stop breathing, they're not going anywhere with you. Now, a second bad habit you can get into if you, if you forget that these possessions and wealth are not your own 
is that you start to spend frivolously and you find yourself in financial difficulties. How often have your wants overcome your responsibilities? You have a huge pile of medical bills over there, but man, you sure do like that new boat. You only have a two-year-old car, but you know that new model has all the bells and whistles. It might be a little upside down, but I'm going to go get it. You see, God wants to see that you can be responsible with your money and the things that he gives you so that he can give you the inheritance of those true riches. And you, and you read in uh, Proverbs 10, verse 4, it says, He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. You see, God wants you to be responsible and diligent with everything that he gives you so that he can trust you with those true riches. I cannot emphasize that enough. But you know, it's not easy to understand that. It's not easy to adapt and accept that mentality because you work so hard for everything that you have. Hours upon hours, a year, a week, a day. But I have some questions I want to ask you all to maybe help you put it into perspective. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? No one in here is shaking their head no. Do you believe that you are a sinner. No one in here is shaking their head no. Do you believe that Jesus can take on the burdens of your sins? Yeah? Have you accepted Christ as your Savior by confessing Jesus is Lord? Perhaps you have. Most of us in here probably have. See, but you have to remember in the time of Jesus, when you called someone your Lord, you were either a servant or a slave. Now, let me ask you, as a slave, did you own anything that you could call your own? No, you didn't. You see, once you confess that Jesus is your Lord, everything that you own and possess is now belongs to Jesus. Your wallets, your cars, your house, your clothes, your money, it is now all Jesus's. Jesus is Lord. And there's a second principle for receiving true riches from God, and that is to realize what is at stake. You see, the unjust servant suffered from a disease I call fat, dumb, and happy syndrome. See, as long as, as, long as he wasn't confronted about his mishandling of his master's funds, he was fat, dumb, and happy. He was content. He didn't care about what was going to happen tomorrow. But it was only until he was confronted by his master that he realized his time was short. And all of a sudden, there was a sense of urgency. And he started to look out for himself. But let me ask you, as a Christian, how are you living your life what type of productive Christian life are you, li are you living? Because you, you see, as Christians, we need a sense of deadline. Because no one, no one is guaranteed tomorrow. And yes, you are called to a life of joy and peace, but you are not called to a life of leisure. See, you know, Christian life is an active life. And it's not just mere activism. It is focused and it is engaged. It is busy. 
It's not frantic. It is urgent. And most importantly, it is not a passive form of existence. You know, when Jesus shows us in the Bible the framework of a very pressing time constraint, in John chapter 9, verse 4 says, I must work on the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. He didn't say when I can't work. He said the night is coming when no one can work. Brothers and sisters, you have to realize that you haven't got forever to spread the gospel. You need to utilize all of your resources to benefit God's kingdom. And that is the one main reason why Jesus told this parable. You have to understand the urgency of using what God gives you for this purpose. And God wants that so badly that Jesus says it best in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Or as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, when talking about the gifts of the Corinth church to the needy in Jerusalem, he says, You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. See, God wants you to understand, and more importantly, wants you to use what he gives you to manage to build his kingdom urgently. And the third principle of receiving true riches from God is deciding which will be your God. Once again, in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What Jesus is telling you is that without any exception, you cannot serve both God and money. So which is it for you? I have a friend, a very wealthy friend. I have a friend that I've gone to he and his wife's house for dinner. I've gone to many different events with him, spent a lot of time around him over the years. And the more time I spend with him, the more I am impressed with his true humbleness and generosity. And one day I asked him, I said, hey, how, how did you grow up with such wealth and never get consumed with materialism? And he looked at me, didn't even have to think about it. He goes, John. Growing up, we were taught by our parents that everything in our home and everything that we have was either an idol or a tool. You see, brothers and sisters, that is exactly what Jesus is telling us. And that hits me hard. See, your money, my money, can either be an idol or it can be a tool we use for God. harder to say out loud. I'm going to go ahead and close. But I do want to tell you another story. I love stories, so I'll tell you another story. About a 15th century czar of Russia, Ivan the Great. See, Ivan was a brilliant military strategist, and he became so consumed with all of his military campaigns that he never took on a bride. 
And now, extremely concerned about the heir to his throne, Ivan the Great began a diligent search for a new bride. And after some time and careful research and search, he decided that he wanted to marry the daughter of the king of Greece. And now the king of Greece was delighted, but he said yes under one stipulation that Ivan the Great would become a member of the Greek Orthodox Church. So Ivan agreed. So the king of Greece sent a priest up to Russia to train Ivan on the Orthodox doctrine. And once that training was completed, Ivan and 500 of his most talented soldiers were traveling to Greece. And upon their arrival, Ivan was to be baptized into that religion. Now, Ivan's soldiers were very loyal to, to the campaign and to him. And along the way, they all decided that they wanted to follow Ivan and be baptized as well. So after a crash course in the Orthodox doctrine, Ivan and all of his 500 soldiers were ready to be baptized into the Greek Orthodox religion. And you can imagine the scene. There were 500 fully dressed soldiers with swords waiting in the Mediterranean with 500 priests. But there was one problem. The Greek Orthodox religion didn't allow professional soldiers to become members. But this didn't bode well for Ivan or his army. So they compromised. And in, this, and in this compromise, it was decided that as the soldiers were being baptized, when they're going underwater, they will lift their entire fighting arm and their sword above water so that all of them were submerged except their fighting arm and their sword so that when they went to battle, it wasn't a product of the baptized man. It was a product of their unbaptized arm and sword. And this actually became known as the army of the unbaptized sword. You know, we as Christians live with a lot of things in our lives that are unbaptized. Unbaptized TVs, unbaptized cell phones, unbaptized book collections, unbaptized work habits, and unbaptized wallets. But as Brother Matt talked about earlier, when that day comes when you're not breathing and you're waiting, you're waiting to find out. There's no waiting. There's nothing you can say. You can't give an excuse. So what is it going to be? The great news is you still have time. We're all breathing. If you need help from the church to change, or if you need to be baptized, come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.